Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Rebecca King, and we're coming up on the shortest day of the year, December 21st, also known as the winter solstice. It's easy to miss in the midst of shopping and baking and celebrating with family and friends during the holidays. However, the solstices and the equinoxes were once incredibly important for many cultures and religions. I'm Michael Friedlander. I've been on the faculty of the physics department since fall of 1956. Though Professor Friedlander works in the physics department, he's also really interested in the field of archaeoastronomy, which is our topic of discussion for today. Well, archaeoastronomy, to my mind, covers any of the pre-telescopic and also pre-writing records. It's a term which is relatively new, it's supposed to cover the study of ancient ruins, like Stonehenge, where there's some man-made structure, could be a building, it could be a set of markers, which indicate certain directions. You will see sunrise at midsummer, or the solstice, or moonrise, or moonset. The idea is that it's sort of a calendar. It's not really an observatory. So these were structures which memorialized what was already known. Of course, Stonehenge is just one of the most well-known archaeoastronomical sites. In fact, there are thousands across the world. There are lots. There are several hundred sites around the British Isles, stone circles which indicate, or at least it's contested, directions of observation which seem to line up with moonrise or moonset particularly. In this country, the best known are actually a little bit south in Mexico or in Central America structure, Machu Picchu and others. In the United States, there are stone circles. There's nothing quite as elaborate. There's a structure in Ohio which seems to indicate preferred directions. Suggestions are that the dimensions of some of these structures incorporate a basic unit of length. I think that's heavily contested. So how exactly do these rings of stones or wooden poles work? Professor Friedlander mentioned that these structures mark preferred directions, like our cardinal directions north, south, east, and west. But that only explains four of the poles. In fact, some of the poles on either side of the east pole actually mark where the sun rises along the horizon as it moves throughout the year. Well, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, so that's a broad generalization. Where in the east and where in the west varies with the season. And so the sunrise positions go through a cycle every 12 months. And for the equinox position, that is September and March each year, and pretty accurately the same position. And you've got the solstice positions, the furthest north and the furthest south positions are the other extremes. Midsummer in June 21st and midwinter, December 21st. And obviously these must have been important to the people who lived there, that they wanted to mark it out with this impressive structure. Now, if you're like me, and have forgotten all of your astronomy classes, here's a little refresher on how the equinoxes and solstices work. We all know that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. But like Professor Friedlander said, this is only broadly true. In fact, the sun rises slightly northeast, 
or southeast, depending on the tilt of the Earth's axis. The only days on which the sun rises due east are on the equinoxes in March and September, when the plane of the Earth's equator passes the center of the sun and the night and day are thought to be equal length, though this depends, of course, at what latitude you're living. For the equinox, the tilt of the Earth's axis is straight, neither leaning toward or away from the sun. The solstices, on the other hand, mark where the Earth is tilting furthest and closest to the Sun. These vary, too, by hemisphere, because when the northern hemisphere is tipped closest to the Sun, the southern hemisphere is furthest away. So, for the northern hemisphere, June 21st is the summer solstice, the longest day of the year, when the northern hemisphere is tipped closest to the Sun. The winter solstice December 21st is the shortest day of the year when the northern hemisphere is tipped furthest from the sun. So the cultures who built these stone and wood calendars, like Stonehenge, have placed markers accordingly to indicate where on the horizon the sun would rise on these solstices and equinoxes in those locations. Some also line up with the orbit of the moon, and others still are thought to have poles which line up with certain stars, which is pretty impressive. So why build these structures? Why keep track of these days? Well, without any writings left, it's hard to know for sure. Um, there's a lot of conjecture. If, there's, if you know something about the tribal structure and you have records of the legends that these people handed down from generation to generation, even if there's no writing, you might be able to infer that this particular star was sacred and therefore an alignment is not surprising. But if you've got no records and none, there was no native writing in North America, what do you do? It's plausible, but it's not proven. Sure. We don't know. Uh, great conjecture, but there's no, no proof at all. Well, was it constructed because the Martians told them which way? No, we've got no evidence either. <laughs> So given that there are no written records, how do archaeologists and archaeoastronomers approach these sites for study? Well, let's consider a site a little closer to home here in St. Louis than Stonehenge. Let's consider Cahokia. We're lucky enough to have with us today one of the preeminent researchers on Cahokia. Okay, I'm John Kelly. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Anthropology here at Washington University. And I, the main focus of my research since the late 60s has turned out to be Cahokia. I mean, not just Cahokia, but the region, the, the whole Cahokia complex. The last 20 years have really focused on the way in which the community is laid out and the role that ritual plays in this as part of religion. Located in Collinsville, Illinois, Cahokia is a state historic site and UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's the site of a pre-Columbian Native American city, which, in its heyday in the 13th century, stretched six square miles and boasted a population larger than London at the time. One of the most remarkable features of the site is the large earthen mounds that dot the landscape. The largest of these, called Monk's Mound, stands at the heart of the ancient city and is an impressive 10 stories tall. 
It's considered the largest prehistoric earthen construction in the Americas north of Mexico. This city and its structures were built by the people known today as Mississippians. The people that we're talking about are the ancestors of the Creek, the various other Muscogean nations, the Creek, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, uh, the Cherokee, and the Osage for this area, and Quapaw. So, and there are other, other groups, many other groups as well. But what we're seeing beginning with Cahokia and the area around it is this process of urbanization, and that's what's so important. You can hear Professor Kelly talk more about the city of Cahokia in an earlier episode of Hold That Thought as a part of our series on cities. So, back to archaeoastronomy. What about the city of Cahokia speaks to archaeoastronomers? Well, the city itself is arranged by the cardinal directions, with Monk's Mound in the center, and four large plazas stretching out to the north, south, east, and west. The largest of these plazas is actually bigger than St. Peter's Square in the Vatican able to hold many thousands of people. But it's clear to archaeologists like Professor Kelly that even the layout of the city had immense meaning in Mississippian culture. There are two basic geometric shapes that we see that are fundamental to some of their symbolism. And one is a circle and one is a square and also represented by the cross. One of the things we're discovering at Cahokia is that the square really accentuates the four cardinal directions. The circle really accentuates the continuity of life. And the square is often seen as being associated with males and the circle with females. And you have a balance in terms of society and in terms of nature. I mean, we see this pattern repeated. We see a circle on the west, a square on the east. We'll see the square to the south. We'll see the circle to the north. So there's a north-south dimension to it too. The wood hinge, which is a circle, but also accentuates the four cardinal directions with the, well, it's particularly east-west with the equinoxes, is on the west. And if you look at Monk's Mound, it's the largest monument at the site. It's on the east, and it's square. And so it's also oriented to those directions. So you begin to, to look at the way in which they're putting this balance within their community together at a, at a very different level. So, ritual and religion seem to play an important role in this society if they literally lay out their cities by these patterns. Aside from Monk's Mound, one of the other largest features of the site is Woodhenge, which Professor Kelly mentioned. Shaped much like Stonehenge, it is a large circle of raised wooden poles to mark the sun's positions. According to Professor Kelly, Professor Friedlander actually helped identify the alignments of Woodhenge in some of the earliest excavations of the site. Warren Whitry was an archaeologist doing the, what we call the salvage archaeology there at the site in the early 60s. And, and looking at the maps, he began to realize there was a pattern to some of the features that we call post pits. And what these are, elongated ramps that are effectively slip trenches in order to, to get a pole that's fairly high, 15, 20 feet up in the air, you know, to raise it up. You just can't drop it in. 
but he worked with Professor Friedlander on the archaeoastronomy part of it because he realized that this pattern of posts represent a series of circles and that when he had the center post that they were laid out to the, the solstices. I mean, the angle and everything. I mean, it's amazing because the diameter of the circles is about the diameter of a football field. So it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. And then there were at least five different circles over about a century. Aside from marking the Earth's orbit around the sun, some researchers now have new evidence that Woodhenge also lines up with the moon's orbit, which would be especially impressive considering that the moon's full orbit around the Earth takes over 18 years. So why would having the solar calendar be important to the Mississippians? According to Professor Kelly, by studying the culture of the Mississippians' descendant tribes, Archaeologists theorize that being able to determine the sun's position might have helped the agricultural Mississippian society determine when to plant and harvest crops. You mean, for example, out on the plains, I think up in the upper plains, when they want to plant crops, they wait 30 days after the ice goes off the lakes. So, they I mean, they have things in nature that they use to, to know when it's safe to do something. So it may have worked the same way here. To push this idea that the Mississippians were attuned to what happened in the heavens, some archaeologists theorized that certain astronomical events actually helped lead to the formation of Cahokia as a city. But I'll let Professor Kelly explain. In looking at how Cahokia evolved or came about, there were populations in the area. They were farming populations, growing native crops in a period that we call late woodland, and we're talking about the 6th and 7th and 8th centuries A.D., going back, oh, easily 2,000 years. However, over time, these communities began to grow, leading up to what one of Professor Kelly's colleagues calls the Big Bang. Rather than having small villages of roughly under 100, now we're starting to get larger villages. And this is at the end of the 10th and into the beginning of the 11th century. So we're talking about 200, and 200 to 300 people in these larger villages. And so they're organized along these same principles that eventually Cahokia abides by. And so you're looking at large plazas, I mean, they're relatively small compared to Cahokia, but houses arranged around them, the use of the square. And then all of a sudden, at the beginning of the 11th century, there is a nucleation of people into Cahokia. And that appears to coincide with one of the supernovas. It's supposed to be the brightest one. This supernova, called SN1006, to mark the year of its occurrence in 1006 AD, appeared in the southern constellation of Lupus. It was so bright that an Egyptian physician and astronomer noticed its presence and surmised that it was one-fourth the brightness of the moon. And then there's another one at 1054, and that's the one that most people are familiar with because of its appearance in the southwestern rock art among the southwest. So it's a major bright explosion in the sky. This is an understatement. This supernova, SN1054, was also widely observed across the world in the constellation of Taurus. 
This is a supernova that produced what we now know as the Crab Nebula remnant. At its peak, SN 1054 may have been four times as bright as Venus, and the supernova remained visible, even in daylight, for 23 days, and was visible in the night sky for almost two years. Around the same time, Professor Kelly and his colleagues see big changes happening in Cahokia. They theorize that perhaps these awe-inspiring events in the heavens may have incited changes in Cahokian society and led to the formation of the city. In the middle of the 11th century, we have the Big Bang. And that's a term a colleague of mine began to use to describe the difference between the earlier cultures that we call emergent Mississippian and the Mississippian cultures. And he saw it as rather abrupt. I mean, it is abrupt. There is a rapid change. Things just become much bigger. We were talking about monuments. Before, when they had important poles, they were fairly small. They were under a foot in diameter. Uh, now we see poles that are three feet in diameter and stick up in the air 15, 20, 30 feet into the air. So there's a massive change in the scale of things. Instead of having small mounds, which are starting to be built which about as large as this countertop, then you have these massive mounds. So things uh, really change rapidly. And so he characterizes the Big Bang. As if two supernovas weren't enough, even Halley's Comet made an appearance in the mid-11th century. And then a decade later, you have Halley's Comet. Now, Halley's Comet is pretty predictable every 72 years or something like that. So probably individuals, and again, that's beyond one's lifetime. The question is, are they observing and seeing a pattern that they can pick up on? So there are two basic major things that happen in the sky that may be linked to that. But we don't know. In the end, we don't know, really. So. That's what Professor Friedlander kept saying. Conjecture. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's exactly. I mean, it's uh, with a lot of what we're dealing with, it's a possibility, but you've got to find other independent ways of demonstrating what's going on. While Professor Kelly and his colleagues continue to look for more evidence to back up some of their theories on these prehistoric cultures, both on dig sites and by examining the cultures that are products of these earlier times, Professor Friedlander and other modern astrophysicists turn to the writings that do exist to help make sense of the skies we're now seeing. In Western Europe, you did have writing. In the Far East, you did have writing. And you got documentation. So that when Kepler in 1604 noticed a new star in the sky, the supernova, we can go back and we know where to look. He described it very carefully. And we can look at the, the remnants of that star, that stellar explosion. And that's important to modern astrophysicists. We have nothing like that from time of Stonehenge or from Cahokia Tor. Did they observe? They must have. But they didn't record them. They didn't have posts which said, gee, if you look in that direction, that's where a new star suddenly appeared. Lots of questions about Cahokia and about Stonehenge in that way. Certainly, as Professor Friedlander said before, we can infer the importance of the heavenly bodies in these cultures from the massive monuments they've built to immortalize them. There was power in knowing when certain things were happening. In fact, simply being able to accurately predict the equinoxes played an integral role in the development of human understanding about the universe as we know it. But you know, Christianity has something there too, defining the day of Easter, the first Sunday after the full moon, after the equinox. 
And so if you can predict when will be the equinox, you can predict when will be Easter. And Easter is very important in Christian belief. And in fact, this simple observational system, this is the direction you must look if you want to know when is the equinox and when, is, when we're going to calculate Easter. It gradually got into error. And it was increasingly in error so that by the mid-15th century, it was out by 10 or 11 days. And this is one of the things that got Copernicus interested. How do you have a better means, a more accurate means, of calculating and predicting where will the sun rise on particular days? And that led him to the whole new system with the Earth not at the center, but going around the sun. And then there's a whole revolution in Galileo, and it's an interesting story. But what it does illustrate is the importance attached to making a prediction, where will something happen in the sky? That's right. Nicholas Copernicus was not the first to theorize a heliocentric view of the universe, but he was the first to mathematically prove such a universe. And he did so because the Catholic Church sought his help in improving the calendar, which Professor Friedlander explained, had fallen into error since it did not take into account the Earth's orbit or the tilt of its axis. From there, Isaac Newton and Johannes Kepler went on to refine his work and established the Earth's precession and the elliptical shape of the rotation of the planets. Still, even as we've continued to better understand our universe and our place in it, we look back to our early ancestors to try and make sense of the clues they left us. How did they conceive of the universe? How did they make sense of their place in those seemingly endless heavens? Archaeoastronomy offers us an important glimpse into their beliefs and way of life. Many thanks today to Professor Michael Friedlander and Professor John Kelly for meeting with me. And thanks to you too for tuning in. If you're interested in seeing the solstices for yourself at Cahokia, they offer sunrise observances at Woodhenge. Just visit their website for more information. And if you'd like to listen to more of Hold That Thought, including more about Professor Kelly's work at Cahokia, you can find our podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. I hope you all have a safe and happy new year.